The Shakeup is brought to you by HubSpot Podcast Network. That's right. The HubSpot Podcast Network is a one-stop audio destination for business professionals. It's where education meets inspiration with amazing shows like My First Million, where you can hear stories from the entrepreneurs who made it big. And where the hosts, Sam and Sean, don't shy away from the tough questions. With access to a collection of marketing, sales, service, and operation shows, you'll have all the information you need as your company goes from startup to scale up and beyond. Listen, learn, and grow with the HubSpot Podcast Network at HubSpot.com slash Podcast Network. You're listening to The Shakeup, where we explore the business decisions that dare to be different and the leaders who are shaking up their industries. My name is Alexis Gay. And I'm Brianne Kimmel. And on each episode, we'll bring research and data-backed insights to dig into the minds of business leaders and learn how they make the decisions that challenge the status quo. You can support the show by following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or honestly, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there, hanging out, talking business, ready and waiting to shake things up with you. Brianne, question for you. What are you working on these days? So I'm a venture capitalist and help tech companies with strategic insights to scale their business. Alexis, what's your deal? You're a comedian hosting a business podcast? Wouldn't you know it? You know, I used to work in tech and now I'm a comedian hosting a business podcast. Well, here we are. Happy to be here. Are you ready to dive in? Absolutely. Today on The Shakeup, we are lucky enough to talk to Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square and author of The Innovation Stack. I am so excited for this episode. We'll be talking to Jim about how he and the Square team beat Amazon and how they went on to disrupt the entire digital payments and financial industry. Awesome. Well, one David and Goliath moment that doesn't really get talked about all that often is the fact that Square actually beat Amazon with an identical product. For anyone thinking about starting something or frustrated when an investor says, isn't Amazon, Google, Facebook going to build this anyway? Investors are so quick to assume that big companies will win, but that wasn't the case here. Yeah, that's something I hear all the time. I mean, it's super rare to go up against Amazon and win. You know, when Jim tried to find other companies who'd done it successfully to see if he could learn anything from their strategy or copy any part of their successful approach, he actually had a really hard time finding someone who had done it. I mean, I personally wouldn't want to go up against Amazon, but I don't think Jeff Bezos is going into comedy anytime soon, so I think I'm okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, Amazon started selling an identical card reader for a fraction of the price of Square. Yikes. It's crazy. If you look at the pricing plan, yeah, with Square, they charged 2.7% on each transaction, while Amazon was doing a promotional offer at 1.75 for new customers and then later increased that to 2.5. But Amazon definitely came in with the better pricing plan with a lot more existing distribution. Totally. Double yikes. Yeah. I mean, Jim called out this existential threat when he was on CNN and said, when you undercut your price by 30% and have Amazon, the brand, and all of the other stuff that they bring to the table, you're dead. And so for uh, a leader of a company to openly you know, talk about how hard the competition was and what it's like to compete head-on with Amazon is a really interesting conversation. Yeah. I oftentimes encourage teams to actually look at the team composition of who they're going up against. Oftentimes, these large platforms or these big multi-product companies, they'll experiment and dabble in a lot of different things without the team structure or the resources to truly make it a success. It's viewed as part of one of many things that they're doing. And so I think it really comes down to like, is the thing that you're building a core priority for that mm. company? And do they does that mm. team actually have the resources and the desire to really find product market fit and turn this into a core part of their business? 
Do you think that this dynamic, this sort of incumbent versus startup competition is ultimately good for consumers? Absolutely. Yeah, competition mm. is a way for startups to stay relevant. It's a way for big companies to really, you know, stay on top of trends. And, you know, sometimes these can be behavioral trends. Sometimes these can be audience mm. or market trends where when startups start to take off in new markets, it forces the incumbent, which historically has started maybe in Silicon Valley, it forces them to explore new regions. It forces them mm -hmm. to break out of the Bay Area bubble in ways that they haven't really had to think about before. You could say that having money to burn is a competitive advantage, but in the case of Amazon versus Square, Amazon had plenty of money to burn. Obviously, it wasn't profitable at the time, and neither was Square, but they still had plenty of money. That didn't seem to be the thing that ultimately caused their dominance over Square. What would you recommend to startups that are going against somebody who has what feels like a limitless line of credit to burn? Yeah, it's a great point. I would say from the perspective of Square, they've done a great job on category creation and product positioning. And I think right. increasingly people are making values aligned decisions and Square is in a strong position to support these small merchants everywhere. I recently read that 83% of millennials want brands to align with them on their values. And so it's mm -hmm. harder for a big giant like Amazon to deliver specifically these values across all of the different products and all of the different things that they do. Because Square came in as this nice player in the ecosystem that deeply cared about small businesses. Like that culture is something that continues to compound over time. And I also know that this has been really helpful for them on the hiring side of things where they're able to attract really great talent and really great people that care about small businesses. So it's nice to see that like when you start to invest in culture and you really build a community around what you're doing, that can become a real competitive advantage when you go up against these big guys that quite mm -hmm. frankly have lost their heart and soul. It's so funny you say that about Amazon losing their heart and soul because I don't think it's a controversial statement to say, of course, I completely agree. And so many people I know feel that way. People talk about Amazon like they're big brother, you know? And yet everybody I know has Amazon Prime and orders something once a week. I also feel like a lot of times it's very easy to view these sort of outcomes as more binary outcomes. So you can have Amazon, which is consistently doing well across all of their different revenue streams from AWS to yeah. their retail part of the business. Like they're just consistently doing well quarter over quarter. Mm -hmm. What's also nice to see is there's this next level down of public stocks that are really helpful to small businesses and ones that have really soared over the last 12 months. Like Square was up 250% in 2020. Shopify was up 86%. So mm -hmm. while Amazon feels like this all-encompassing giant and something that, you know, a lot of startups might be afraid to go up against, we actually see that there's this long tail of companies that are also doing really well over the last 12 months and ones that have really been able to ride some of these strong COVID-related tailwinds. And it's not just Amazon mm -hmm. and the big tech companies. Like, there's room for new companies to get started in a lot of these same sectors. So, Brian, something you said about tailwinds actually really makes me think of something that's come up a couple times in my career, which is that if an established player is replicating your product or coming into your space, it's not always a bad thing in the sense that sometimes they're essentially paying major amounts of money to help educate your market and expose the availability of your product out there to people who don't know that it exists. And something that we've talked a little bit about is that Square, still to this day, but certainly early on, had a really strong association with small businesses, which makes the fact that 
one of the key components of their early success was a big partnership with Starbucks, which is feels like the opposite of small business to me. Um, and, you know, that, of course, led to Starbucks investing $25 million in Square. Yeah, this is something that's a common misconception in the ecosystem is to be small business friendly or to be a bottom-up SaaS company or to do things for small businesses. You kind of need to choose one or the other, mm. either selling to small businesses or going large enterprise. What I'm seeing today is companies that have been the most successful and ones that can build a very enduring business, they do a combination of both. Mm. Square was in that position where they had a really strong strong product and engineering team that was building for, you know, millions of small businesses, that doesn't mean that they aren't able to leverage that same technology, like those same engineers, to sell at more of a franchise or at a, a multinational level to a business like Starbucks. Like on paper, we all know Starbucks is a massive company mm -hmm. um, with, with so many locations in, in every city and in every neighborhood. However, the core mm. mechanics of how Starbucks used Square was largely the same as selling to small businesses. And so I think as companies start to get creative mm. and they layer in some of these enterprise playbooks, it enables you to unlock even more customers, even more revenue, essentially leveraging the same technology that you've already built. I do wonder if founders are tempted sometimes to go in with this alpha, what some might consider like aggressive sort of presentation, you know, here's our attack, like here's how we're going to crush it, destroy the competition. I would say that oftentimes that is potentially shallow thinking. Um, the reason for that is it's important to acknowledge that you will have competition. The next mm -hmm. level of thinking is where do we potentially see an upcoming threat? Or more importantly, where I get excited is how do you actually find ways to turn your potential competitor or your direct competitor into a partner or into a frenemy? And so this is something that we mm. see a lot with SaaS companies where it's better to have integrations with your competitors and to find ways to play nice than to simply build your product in a way where you're not integrating with other companies and you operate in a silo. I think with that sort of siloed thinking, the challenge is that you run the risk of losing relevancy, of turning away customers because they're using different parts of other people's technology yeah. for different things. And so I do look for teams that are thinking more about, here's where we're at today, like here's what we want to own and we're going to be world-class at. Yeah. Here are the things that we need to integrate, or these are the features that we need to have as part of our greater product vision, but we don't want to build them. We're actually going to connect with someone yeah. else who's doing that in a more best of breed way. If you price it with a more premium position in the ecosystem, that's yeah. also great where you can build a more enduring business because you know, you have not only great hardware, you have great software to go with mm -hmm. it. And then you're pricing it in a way where it does feel more premium. And it feels like small businesses are really like buying into this community and buying in to be part of what Square is building. It's funny you say that because Square's pricing at the time was priced so that at a certain scale that they had not yet achieved would one day make them profitable. So they didn't have a lot of wiggle room on their ability to drop their prices. And so it's interesting because they were sort of forced into that position of we can't meet Amazon's pricing. But something they did that was interesting at the time was unlike existing credit card providers, which charged certain per transaction fees, they had a standard fee across all transactions. And that actually helped differentiate them as well. Square was investing a lot in education and workshops for small business owners. And they became this trusted thought partner where you 
are willing to pay a premium for a service when you know behind the scenes there's a lot of information and education. Totally. So a lot of what we're talking about right now are all these different like bricks that Square used to build up their stronghold in the market from this partnership with Starbucks to their choices around pricing to how they took on Amazon and won. A lot of that was really innovative, but it's not that there was any one piece where they did this one thing and ta-da, they survived. This approach that has really shaped Jim's thinking, he calls it the innovation stack. So the innovation stack, by the way, one of my favorite stacks after pancakes, is the title of the book published by Jim McKelvey in 2020 about building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. In the book, he talks a lot about Square and some of the things they did to build their own innovation stack. He also talks about several other companies that were able to use the same approach to find success. And in describing what he means by the term, the innovation stack, he says, Innovation stacked upon innovation stacked upon innovation gives you this weird thing where you end up with a market all to yourself and it's really hard to unseat a company that has all those innovations. A few of the companies he mentions in the book are Southwest Airlines, the Bank of Italy, and Ikea. Now today, Jim heads a venture capital firm working with early stage fintech firms. Specifically, he looks to invest in companies with innovation stacks like they had at Square where a company, as he says, is looking at so much of a defensible position that it doesn't matter what happens, they're bulletproof. I think potentially one counterpoint to Jim is the fact that I love layering new innovations and more products on top of each other. I think sometimes on the consumer or on the customer side of things, when you start to stitch things together or you start to get into the mode where we acquire other companies to unlock new innovation, hmm. sometimes it creates a bit more of a disjointed customer experience. Mm -hmm. And the challenge with that oftentimes can be if the core team is not driving innovation and you're leveraging acquisitions as your source for innovation, it can create a lot of problems where you have this kind of older legacy product that's your hmm. core product and you're slowly like layering other playbooks on top of each other where it's not quite as cohesive. The interesting thing with Jim's concept of innovation stacks is what mm -hmm. we're seeing today is a lot of companies want to start more bottoms up and they end up focusing very heavily on product and engineering. What's interesting is that many of them are actually leaving revenue on the table and they're turning away large customers because they're so focused on just like selling to other startups or just focused on mm. this bottom up motion. Totally. Also, you know, it's funny because I think with all the conversation that's swirling around right now about whether Silicon Valley as a location as a destination for innovation is dead and where the quote next tech hubs will be. There's a lot of it's Austin, it's Miami, it's wherever. I think that that's something that people, especially pre-COVID, didn't think enough about, which is that you don't only have to go for the sexy companies that are splashing across TechCrunch headlines for your next partnership. You can look outside of Silicon Valley and explore other types of partners with other customer bases that may be a more interesting fit for your company, but it just might not like, it might not be the kind of thing you can brag about over dinner to your other CEO friends, but it might be really good for your bottom line. I think oftentimes in the Bay Area, or if you're in a very dense startup ecosystem, you end up selling to friends and family and you're not taking that right. next like leap up to sell outside your network or to start closing large enterprise contracts because 
It's a different muscle. It's scary. You feel like your product's not ready. There's so many reasons why people avoid sales. And so I love Square's story because they had this unique ability to do both. Totally. And I think that that was one piece of what Jim refers to as like the innovation stack for Square. The playbook and what is largely missing from a lot of startups that want to like deliver this level of execution is Mm -hmm. you typically need an operations team. That way you're not move fast, break things, and then someone else is left to pick up all the pieces. What's interesting with these sort of businesses is that we're actually seeing the contribution rate from people that are fresh out of school or from women in underrepresented groups in tech. The contribution rate is going up significantly because it's no longer tied to who is the person that's been at the company the longest Mm. or who is the person that's the first one at their desk and the last one to leave. The people that have the best ideas and that are not out executing each other, but are operating in a way where they're moving fast and not breaking things are the individuals that are Mm. successful in this new environment. Moving fast and not breaking things. Maybe that's the theme. Maybe that's the next era that we're moving into. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Brianne, I think that all makes a ton of sense. And I'm really excited to talk to Jim about it, maybe get his take on some of the things that we've discussed and really dig into the decisions he made and how he defeated Amazon using that innovation stack. And also, I'm curious to hear how exactly the innovation stack has helped a number of different companies survive. And oh, yeah, what a night spent in a Spanish palace taught him about Silicon Valley. Ooh, I'm excited to dig in. Jim's going to have some amazing tactics for business. And I just love the Square story. There's going to be some really fun anecdotes that come up. I know. I totally agree. Do you think I can get him to sign my ebook? Ooh. All that and more coming up after a quick break. Today's episode is sponsored by those fine folks over at HubSpot. Managing conversations with prospects and customers and creating a remarkable experience can be tough. HubSpot wants to change that. That's why they created a CRM platform that makes it easy to align across teams. Oh, it's so much easier. With HubSpot's unified system of record, all teams can create a better customer experience without missing a beat. We love a unified system of record. We always say that. (laughs) You can install live chat on your website and allow sales or support to get in touch with prospects directly. Or send marketing emails on behalf of sales reps or customer success managers. Not to mention, it allows prospects to book meetings with reps without wasting time. Yeah, and best of all, teams can get access to all of a contact's history so they can have more informed conversations with prospects and customers and design a better overall experience. The result, all your customer people can align around the same goals, consistently great customer journeys that drive growth and lifetime loyalty. Learn more about how you can scale your company without scaling complexity at HubSpot.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and leave a review. And if you don't like what you hear, uh, tell a friend anyway. And don't forget to subscribe. Okay, we're back, and I could not be more excited to bring on today's guest. He's the co-founder of Square and author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Jim McKelvey, welcome to The Shake Up. Thank you. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Brian. Hi, Jim. It's so great to have you. I'm super excited, yeah. Just a note on The Innovation Stack quickly. Uh, Jim, you're funny. Like, you're very funny. Well, thank you, but looks aren't everything, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I really loved the writing of your book. I I thought it was really engaging the whole way through, and uh, I also learned a lot. 
We love to learn. We love to learn and we love to laugh. I didn't want to write a business book. I really hated the idea that it would be a business book, but it is. It's that's the genre that it's in. But if you read it, there's some there's actually just a really dirty joke in the book that my uh, editor didn't catch. And I was going to tell him about it. And then I thought, no, man, if you're too checked out to find it, I'll leave it in. Can I guess which one it was? No, no. no, 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 Come on, if you got to keep it here. Yeah, it's it's in there. And I'm sort of embarrassed about it. But but it's also a really puerile joke. So you have to have sort of the uh, pretty raunchy sense of humor to get it. But, oh, yeah, it's there. It's there. And keep it to yourself. Okay, yeah, secret safe with me. So, Jim, just before we dive in a little bit, can you tell us what is the innovation stack? So the innovation stack is this thing that I discovered while I was trying to answer a question that was plaguing me, which is how Square survived an attack by Amazon. So uh, I think we'll get to this in a minute, but Square was attacked by Amazon when we were a startup. And at the time, every company who had been attacked by Amazon while they were a startup died. Mm. There was a 100% mortality rate or had been absorbed into Amazon, which I would mm-hmm. also consider you know, maybe death or worse. And so we were looking at this very dire situation and we did some kind of crazy stuff and it worked. And 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 then after it worked, I thought, why did it work? Mm. And I couldn't answer that question. So um, and I, I'm a sort of nerdy engineer and I went on this research quest looking for other companies that had lived through similar situations. So I studied historical you know, businesses. I studied uh, boring businesses. I studied the airlines. I studied all these areas where Technology was not the major force, but there was this thing that kept showing up in my research. And it was this thing that I labeled an innovation stack. And it's just this very simple idea that invention is not one or two things. It's usually this messy conglomeration of 10, 20, 30, 40 Mm -hmm. things. So I always use the word innovation like a mass noun, like cement. Like you don't Mm -hmm. buy a cement you buy cement. It's this thing. Yeah. It's volume. You know. So to me, innovation is a mass noun. Mm. One thing that really struck me at the beginning of the book is the intellectual honesty of the founders at Square. Like you went through and listed all of the reasons that the company may potentially fail, which I think in this environment is a very audacious move to say not only to have a pitch deck of all of the great things that are about to happen, but we've really thoughtfully broken down all of the reasons that we may potentially fail. And I greatly appreciated that level of honesty. So did our investors. Uh, mm-hmm. It turns out that, Brian, that was a pivotal moment in us selling the company to the investment community because for the first time, I think ever, we admitted all the stuff that could go wrong. And we openly discussed that in the pitch meeting. Look, humility is a superpower, okay? Mm -hmm. Humility, if combined with audacity, gives you the ability to get feedback into your ego-saturated brain. Absolutely. That's great advice across the board for anyone really thinking about starting a new venture. Okay, let's talk about the meeting about Amazon. So tell us a little bit about, you of course know the meeting that I'm referring to. Do you wanna set the stage a little bit? Well, Jack was dressed in all black. And uh, he announced that Amazon had copied our product Mm. and was going to undercut our price, which is what they always do. Mm -hmm. And he told the board what was happening. And we have a very intelligent group of people on the board, and we have a lot of experienced folks, and we were all stumped. And was everybody in the room with you? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, this was a board meeting. And and it was, board meetings at Square are usually fun. Mm -hmm. And this was just dark. It was this moment where 
we hoped there was some solution. And we did what you normally do when confronted, which is you look for other people whose solutions you can copy. Like who's beaten Amazon? Well, let's find somebody. There must be somebody. Nobody. Yeah. So then I went into full on panic. I was like, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And then we started iterating through the questions of, well, what could we do? And you know, one of the most basic ones was Amazon was undercutting our price. Well, we could lower our price and match Amazon. And then but here's the thing. We chose our price to be as low as it could be and still serve our customers. Like if we had matched Amazon price, we would have been out of business. Mm -hmm. And it also was not something that would have been honest to our consumers because it would have basically just been say, oh, you know, look, you know that price we've been charging you for the last four years? Well, uh, we could have done better. Yeah. And our answer to our customers was, look, look, I'm sorry, we're doing as well as we can. We're doing the best we can, and that's the price you get. And if we can lower it in the future, we will, but we can't do it just because, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest company in tech has decided that they want to kill us. So we didn't lower our price. We didn't actually even do anything that was different, mm -hmm. which was the amazing thing. We wanted okay. to do something. Because look, if you're being attacked, the, the hardest thing you can do is to not react. Mm -hmm. Or maybe not overreact. Wow. Yeah. That must have been a really hard conclusion. It was terrifying. And this this was this made it even more interesting when we won for me to answer the question, why? What the heck happened? Because I was so happy we won. But then I, I was like, why did we win? Like, okay, was this just luck? Or was there some deeper pattern here? Was there something that might be a lesson for me or other people? But the strategic discussions, yeah. which I think I was privy to, um, we're basically the same, which is like, what can we do? What yeah. can we do that we're not doing? And the answer was nothing. We're doing everything we can do. And we have been because mm -hmm. we're motivated by the needs of our customers. Totally. Just focusing on the customers. So we weren't sitting there thinking, oh, well, if a competitor does this, this is our counter move. We were like, oh, yeah. what's a customer need? And, and with, you know, mm -hmm. millions of customers, you have a long list of requests. One thing that... I really loved about um, at the beginning of the book is is when you talked about all of the regulatory constraints, and in in the early days, <laughs> oh the God. fact that Square was violating <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands, of laws. Seventeen. Oh my God. I was going to say if you multiply the fact that every transaction broke seventeen laws, rules, or regulations right. by the number of transactions, we were in the millions of transgressions. Yeah, it would have been a, it would have been a bad meeting. <laughs> Did that make you sweat? Would you think about that sometimes in the middle of the night and just be like, oh my God, we're breaking a lot. In, in, in our case, we looked at some of these laws as these sort of vestigial things. Like, you know, I mean, there's a law in my neighborhood, you can't have more than 12 chickens. Well, <laughs> nobody has 12 chickens in my neighborhood. It, it is on the books. Okay. Some of those laws were like the 12 chicken laws. Okay. Uh, some of the laws were simply ones that didn't anticipate the technology. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple that were absolutely reasonable and needed to be complied with. You know, OFAC, mm. KYC, like the, the the security around moving money. We were in early violation of all that, but we had to yeah. get compliant with those and we did. Wow. So Jim, let's talk a little bit about Halloween in 2015. So you got some pretty big news on that day. Can you tell us a little bit? Well, first, actually, let me ask you this. Were you dressed up? I was in costume. Okay. What were you wearing? I was dressed as the Joker. My wife was dressed as Catwoman, and my son was dressed as Batman. That's adorable. The best treat I got that night was Amazon announcing that they were going to discontinue their competitor to Square. 
And not only that, they were going to mail one of the little white square readers, the thing that I designed four years earlier, they were going to mail one of those to all their customers. So Amazon was not only getting out of the business, but they were basically giving us all their customers. Truly unbelievable. And I know I talk a lot of crap about Amazon, but they're a well-run company. Like, And look, yeah. they... They were probably not trying to be nice to us. What they were doing is they were trying to take care of their customers. Right. So they right. offered this thing. The thing didn't work. And they said, what's the best alternative for our customers? Well, the best alternative was Square. So you know what Amazon did? They swallowed their pride. They got a bunch of our equipment. And they mailed it to their soon-to-be former customers. I thought it was a classy move. Absolutely. Like, say what about Amazon? They treat their customers well. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. they have that integrity. And, and I saw it. And it was, it was wonderful. So happy Halloween. <laughs> they pointed to the press release. And, you know, I'm not going to tell my kid because he doesn't understand this. I tell my wife. I was like, guess what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh, my God. At that point, it was like, wow, maybe we can have guacamole with our next burrito because we won't be poor again. Yeah. You know? like That's right. Full-size candy bars next year. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Like, wow. Not the fun size. Did it feel real in that moment? No, it didn't. It didn't. This stuff takes days to settle in. Hmm. Sometimes it still doesn't feel real. When I look back right now and realize the trajectory that we had, I was yeah. like, did did that actually happen? Hmm. Yeah, it did. It did. And it's well documented. But I still don't think a lot of the stuff that's happened to me is, is real. I mean, I've been so lucky. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Do you still have any lingering nightmares or thoughts of what if the opposite were true? Like, what if Square did not exist today? What if Amazon had won? Oh, I'd be fine. I mean, I always considered myself rich before Amazon because, not because I had a lot of money, but because mm -hmm. I have really cheap taste. The day I realized I was, I was rich, I was going to work and the radio was giving away some, uh, some $10,000 prize and the mm. radio announcer's like, just imagine how $10,000 is going to change your life. And I thought about it, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, it wouldn't. And oh, I thought and about how much moment. money it would take to change anything. Hmm. Look, I live in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I hang out with a bunch of people who are not rich. I mean, like, it, look, do I have excesses in my life? Absolutely. You know, hmm. um, I'm, I'm, I, I, yeah, I've, I've succumbed a little bit. But like, basically, I don't. If yeah. Square had not happened, um, I, I would have one one thing that would be that I. There was one reason I wish it hadn't happened. Hmm. These days, I have to say no to so many things that I would normally just say yes mm. to because people don't want to meet me. They want to meet my money. Oh, like people Oof. are pretending to be interested in Jim McKelvey or my ideas or my book or whatever. And then they kind of do that pivot. Hey, Jim, I got this. And then boom, comes the ask. And, and that just bums me out. I went out to lunch the other day with somebody who I kind of liked and you know, I didn't know him that well. He seemed really interesting. Yeah. Oh, man. Halfway through the lunch, I was like, oh, here it comes. Oh, my God. You know? And I was like, dude, you should have just had lunch with my wife. She runs the foundation and gives the money. Right. Away. Like, don't. So I, I regret that, but the rest of it's hmm. fine. So, Jim, I want to take you back to a moment that you talk a little bit about in the book, which is attending a party at a Spanish palace I guess my first question just is if you could tell us a little bit about this palace. Like, you know, what's the vibe? Is this a dark, gloomy palace? Is this like gorgeous opulence, Phantom of the Opera palace? Like what kind of palace are we working with here? This is your Disney castle palace. This Ooh, is okay. badass. 
super wealthy great 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 grandparents uh that has you know this this is nobility you know mm. back when they had nobility back when the mm -hmm. queen of spain funded christopher columbus rich yes. right yes. and it turns out uh, as it happened, that that was this family. Like this was part of the venture capital for Christopher Columbus. And wow. um, I've got to set the context because at this point I had been perplexed by the answer to the question, that how did Square survive Amazon? So mm -hmm. I've got this question rattling around my head and I can't answer mm -hmm. it. I'm like, what happened? What happened? Yeah. What happened? What? How come I can't find it? I'm studying. I'm, I'm talking to people. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, you know, obsessively trying to answer this question. I can't think it out. What? And I was mm -hmm. like, what's going on? What's going on? And so I go to this party, and there's a tour group because the place is kind of huge. Yeah. And uh, we go into the library, and the tour guide shows they show us the original letters of Christopher Columbus back to this family that had funded him. Wow. And I was I was like, oh my God, this is his pitch deck. Like this is this is what Columbus did to get funded. And then I thought, hmm. oh my God, you're like I because I was living in the startup world, I was like, oh, you think you had it tough trying to raise your money for your startup? Yeah. Like <laughs> this guy had to raise money and talk about hiring people. Like I hire people if we fail, they lose their job. You know, Columbus yeah. fails, they die. And all of a sudden it just hit me in this moment. I remember because the tour group had left, I'm sitting there just transfixed, looking mm. at Columbus's handwriting wow. going, oh my God, that's the answer. That's the answer, that's mm. the answer. And the answer was, I've got to mine history. I don't want to look around me in contemporary business. I need to look at history because if there is a power that protects you from forces like Amazon, if there is that power and it exists, it will have shown itself throughout history. And by God, the second I started doing that, I was like, example, example, example. I was all of a sudden, I went from like no data to do my research mm -hmm. to like, oh my God, I've got so much data. I've got too much totally. data. And so then I could be like super picky about the stories that I actually deeply researched. And I could just, I could mm -hmm. say, okay, I need one right here. I need one right there. And we weren't right there. So it was a beautiful moment in sort of self-discovery and research. Um, and also humility, like what our forefathers had to do with was just way worse than what we've got now. Like it is easy today. Totally. Compared to what people had to do. Yeah. That's amazing. Jim, how has this discovery, your discovery of looking back on historical figures and moments in history where they were using the innovation stack change the way that you now moving forward in a post, like the post Amazon battle, obviously not post square. How has that changed the way that you approach business today? So the big insight of the book is that the process of innovation is fundamentally different and it feels different. And here's how it feels. So what I tell my readers or potential readers is, look, the reason you read the innovation stack is that at some point in your life, you are going to run up against the edge of human knowledge. And when you do, you have this moment of choice. I want more people in the world to feel like they could. Not necessarily going to succeed, but at least understand that there is the potential for success on the other side of that line. Look at what that potential is like. I mean, you know, sort of vicariously live through it, you know, laugh about it, have some, you know, read some good stories about it. And let me tell you the thing. Hmm. When you're 
in the process of, of building an innovation stack, it is so darn uncomfortable. So I want people to have recognition. So first of all, recognize the boundaries. That's hugely helpful, okay? Uh, secondly, understand when it's appropriate to copy and when you need to innovate. And the big chunk mm -hmm. of the book is sort of this, this discussion of how we are wired to copy and why that's good. Like I'm not knocking copying. I'm mean, like, oh, McKelvey hates copying. No, 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 no. I do that every possible mm -hmm. moment I can. I will steal your best ideas anywhere. Like I will use that because that's what usually solves a problem. Innovation is a last resort, but if it is mm -hmm. your last resort, then understand how it's different. Then be able to recognize at least some of the big things about innovation that are likely to cause discomfort. So it's your expectation. Like if you expect mm -hmm. things to be harder than they are, you're probably gonna be happy. So one of the things I wanted to do was prepare the reader. Look, if you step across that line between the known and the unknown, it's going to get unpleasant. It will not kill you. Mm -hmm. It might be really wonderful on the other side eventually, but here's what it's like, be prepared. Your focus is to build. Your focus is to figure out something that nobody else has figured out. How many pieces do you have to come up with before you've got an innovation stack that actually works? And by the way, there's no guarantee that you're ever gonna reach that limit, but you do, and if you do, the world changes. Like it's just amazingly powerful if you build one of these yeah, things. Yeah, that's great. Amazing. Well, Jim, it's been so much fun catching up today. Um, we've gone to a palace with you. We've hung out on Halloween. Like there's been so many amazing <laughs> stories and this has been such a delightful conversation. One question for I'm you. I'm sorry I didn't dress in costume. I know, no. I know. <laughs> One question for you. I mean, what are you working on these days? Oh, a couple of things. Um, I'm working on a, a glass that's difficult to drink from. Mm. A whiskey glass. I love that. To bring your focus back to the thing you're doing. Because we're so distracted these cool. days. I thought, what if I could build a glass that is, is a little difficult to use? I, mean, I told the story in the book about the square reader being difficult to use and why it's uh -huh. purposely difficult to use. Right. This is the same thing. It takes your attention back to the thing you're doing, which in this case is drinking. Uh, so, so I'm working on that. I've got a company called Invisibly, which is trying to solve, I think, the biggest problem in society right now, which is that our attention is not under our control. It's being bought and mm -hmm. sold by platforms that are mm -hmm. not necessarily holding our best interests at the highest level. Uh, the third thing I'm doing is I'm experimenting with a low-cost diaper hmm. because it turns out that poverty really starts when young families, particularly young single mothers, have to pay for diapers. And diapers mm -hmm. are 25 cents a pop, and I'm trying to build a five-cent diaper. And I don't know if it's possible, well, but that's, that's kind of where the energy's going. It sounds like we've got the right man on the job. I feel like if anyone can do that, it's, it's definitely you. And where can people learn more and get a copy of your book? Well, from Amazon, of course. I've been dissing oh, them all week, yes. so let's, uh, <laughs> let's pay some love back to the company that I, I literally criticized on the first page. Now, anywhere books are sold. Um, I prefer you bought it from a small bookstore, if you yeah. can do that. Um, but get it on Audible, get it on Amazon. And my hope is that if you read it, you'll not only laugh, but you'll find this moment where you go, oh, wow, now I recognize this moment that happened to me. And then hopefully you don't let the next one get past you. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We really, really appreciate it. This is so much fun. Thanks, you guys have great questions. It was so much fun to do. Hey, Rianne, are you ready to do that thing we practiced? Oh my gosh, is it time? I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one. Don't, Don't forget, forget to subscribe, subscribe and, and leave, leave us, us a review. review. Pretty good. <laughs> 
Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Lauren Schild. Our engineer is William Lowe, with research from Corey Broccolini. And special thanks to Kyle Denhoff and Lisa Toner. Word of mouth is the best way to help people discover our little podcast. Be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review, you know, to let other people know how awesome we are. We have some amazing guests coming up this season that you won't want to miss. See you next time. 